Hey sinners, Serotonin here, just dropping in with a quick intro. This podcast was originally written and recorded for Spotify, where I'm able to embed some ripper tunes between segments to support the topics, new releases, or particular artists which are discussed. This version has been adjusted to allow sharing on alternate platforms and unfortunately won't include those tracks, which might make my silly segues and transitions just a little bit strange. If you would like to be able to check out the songs that were intended to be part of this episode, jump through the Sin and Steel link tree to the songs from the Sin and Steel podcast playlist, or see the track listing in the description of the episode. Hello and welcome to Sin and Steel, the heavy metal podcast. I'm your host, Serotonin. And today we're shining the artist spotlight on Tia. In between discussing the band's history and music, we have some interesting topics in store, including Vikings, Nazis, Whaling and the Sea Shepherd that have all been part of their journey. So please join me as we explore the world and music of Tia and please bear with me as I try my best to pronounce all the Scandinavian and some German words and names throughout. Hailing from the tiny 18-island archipelago between Iceland and Norway that is the Faroe Islands, these guys take inspiration from the traditional stories of the Faroese people, the folklore, Norse mythologies, Scandinavian cultures and history, and their incredibly unique and stormy landscape. They use this to create a fantastic mix of progressive folk metal with heavy Viking themes and some power metal attributes. It would be easy to lump this band in with the ever-increasing list of Viking metal acts, and although they do fit in that list, I mean, I have just described them as having heavy Viking themes, I do personally feel that they deserve a little bit more credit. I'm a sucker for some Viking metal. I love power metal and fantasy themes in music. Throw in Vikings and Norse mythology and I'm all in. But there is a cheesiness to it, particularly where it's heavily used for gimmick or aesthetics, that I see being wrongly assumed for all bands within the genre. I'm kind of saying this in part because of a bunch of reviews that I've seen for the band that essentially just rag on them for being too reliant on the Viking gimmick. But when inspirations are coming from the culture, the history and the continued traditions of their people, I feel that it's a very different story and a bit of a discredit to what they do. In the case of Tyr, and I know I'm repeating myself, but they're based in the Faroe Islands, a small and self-governed set of islands that, although have modernised, they still hold on to many traditions that link back to real-life Vikings. So it's part of the culture, part of the history, and part of the present. We will explore some of the Viking themes as we go today, but I did just want to make it clear that in this case, it is much more than just a look or a gimmick. So Tyr was founded in 1998 by Harry Jonsson, Gunnar Thompson, Kari Stramoy, Paul Arnie Hong, and John Jonsson. Prior to this, Harry and Gunnar had been playing together since they were 17 when they started the band Cruiser, which did later rename to Wolfgang. Harry was later studying music in Denmark and bumped into his old bandmate at a party, so they met up to jam and ended up forming Tyr. Although they continued living in Denmark for some time, they always looked to home for inspiration. Traditional Faroese music is primarily vocal, with these epic, sometimes 80-verse stories told often with no musical accompaniment. So there's no real traditional instruments as such, it's all voice. Tear like to take from these traditional stories and use these in many of their songs as a way of giving them new life. And in fact, they tend to consider themselves, rather than just musicians, as ballad singers in the same way that the stories are originally shared down. 
In 2001, the group performed their version of the Faroese folk ballad, or Murin Lungi, or The Long Serpent, at the Prix Foroya Song Contest. The song became an absolute hit in the Faroes and helped lead them on to their next EP album and then some more international recognition. Singer Paul Arnie Hong left the band as he was returning to the Faroe Islands for work, taking up carpentry, so he was replaced temporarily by Alan Stramoy. At the same time, Terji joined on guitar, the band having met him while playing the song contest where his existing band had played alongside Tear in the finals. Also a rendition of a Faroese ballad, 2002 saw the release of their EP, Olivar Ridoraros. The Alan Stramoy version of this is on the How Far to Asgard album as a bonus track, but it was re-recorded with Harry on vocals in 2003 for Eric the Red. We're going to listen to the cleaner and, in my opinion, more enjoyable Eric the Red version now. I'd really like to explore Tyr's namesake for a moment. So Tyr is a god in Germanic and, of course, Norse mythology. Tyr is the god of war and bloodshed, as well as the bringer of justice and order. There's only one surviving myth in which Tyr is a prominent feature, which is the binding of Fenrir. The story tells of Fenrir the wolf, who was only a pup at the time, but he was growing quickly. The gods feared for their lives, so they tried to tie Fenrir up and prevent his escape. When Fenrir saw the chain that was meant to bind him and was untrusting of the gods, he declared that he would only allow the gods to chain him if one of them would put their arm in his mouth as a pledge of good faith. Only Tyr was willing to do so. Once chained and Fenrir found he was unable to break free, he bit off Tyr's arm, making him forever the one-armed god. With Tyr's sacrifice, he was able to procure the salvation of the gods and everybody's safety. Essentially, though, he was lying to Fenrir, using fraud and trickery against him, but he knowingly suffered a punishment of disfigurement for doing so, showing himself as willing to uphold the law even at his own detriment. Despite there only being one surviving tale that features him most prominently, this doesn't mean that he wasn't important. Tyr's role sat alongside that of Odin and Thor as one of the principal war gods, and centuries earlier, Tyr was also identified by Romans with their own war god Mars. Even the Romans saw him as more than just a god of war, though, with inscriptions invoking him as Mars Thinxus, which meant Mars of the Thing, with the Thing being the legal assembly of the time, just confirming his role in law and justice. To further support his importance in Germanic religion, this is evident with his name being symbolised by the T-Rune, which makes up part of the runic alphabet, and with his name being linked to what we now know as Tuesday, which means Tears Day. So he was important enough that we still have a link to him in our everyday life. Or at least once a week, right? So that's where the band's name comes from. Now if we jump back to our timeline, although the band released the Olivar Ridoraros EP in 2002, they also released the album How Far to Asgard, which is an absolute ripper of an album. This was the last album featuring Paul Arnie Holm on vocals and Harry's brother John on guitar. So let's have a listen to a song off this album, Hail to the Hammer. Next in line was the album Eric the Red, released in 2003 and hitting it big in Iceland. When asked why this album was released so closely to the previous EP, Harry said that they had received some scathing reviews on the original recordings for Olivar Ridoraros and they felt that they needed to move quickly to rectify this, which included re-recording the two tracks with Harry on vocals. Also part of this album were interpretations of an Irish folk song, The Wild Rover, and Ramond Him Ung, a Danish folk song. 
If we take a look at the stylization or the logo that's used in amongst all the band's artwork, Tear is always written using the related Nordic runes. Harry has confirmed that when designing this, he was influenced by the album cover of Black Sabbath's Tear, which uses the same. This isn't the only Black Sabbath link with Tear either. They've talked about being big fans of Dio, done a really wicked cover of the song Eye of Black Sabbath's Dehumanizer, and a rainbow cover of Stargazer. It's funny, I was having a conversation just a week or so before writing this episode about how I always forget that there are Black Sabbaths outside of Aussie and Dio Black Sabbaths. This came about because we were discussing that apparently many years ago, after Dio but before Ian Gillen played with Black Sabbath, Michael Bolton auditioned to be part of Black Sabbath. Michael Bolton denies this, but Tony Iommi talks about it in his book. I don't completely understand why he would deny it outside of maybe some shame, but a possible reason is due to him having such a wide audience, including some more conservative crowds. So maybe he didn't want it widely known. I don't know. But somewhere in an alternate universe, a Black Sabbath with Michael Bolton exists, and I just wish I could hear it. What that did lead to, though, was Black Sabbath with Tony Martin, who did the albums The Eternal Idol, Headless Cross, and Tear. You can laugh at me for this if you like, but I did not know these existed, or at least I didn't know that they were actually good and kind of forgot that they existed. So I've already told my dad that he let me down in my childhood metal education for missing this part of the Black Sabbath lesson, but I suppose it's never too late, because this album, Tear, is so fucking cool. Tony Martin's voice is fantastic and makes me more than happy to add another Sabbath to the rotation. Unfortunately, these albums aren't on any streaming services, so I can't share anything as part of this episode. However, Tony did release a solo album in 2022 called Thorns. So from this one, let's listen to the song Damned By You. After the initial success of Eric the Red, Tear were picked up in 2006, signing a deal with Napalm Records, which was definitely a step up from the smaller Faroese label in which they were previously signed. They went on to record the album Ragnarok, then performing in 2007 at the festival of the same name, and releasing the album Land in 2008. Tear continued touring, performing at Paganfest in Europe and in the US in 2008 with Enciferum headlining, but drummer Kari Stramoy suffered a back injury which left him unable to play. Amon Duhus, a Faroese drummer and student of Kari, played drums for the European segment of the tour. Merlin Sutter of Elevati filled in on the US portion, and Daniel Ruan of Gigan filled in in Canada. Kari was able to kick back off for another Ragnarok festival in 2009, but later on in 2013, the band announced his departure as the back injury continued to impact his drumming longer term. 2009 saw the release of the album By the Light of the Northern Star, which was then followed by a tour supporting Ailstorm, Black Sails Over Europe. The album By the Light of the Northern Star really picks up pace from some of the previous ones. It's full of these fist-pumping, triumphant choruses, and as always, there's lots of use of traditional melodies, including for this next track that includes both Faroese and Norwegian tunes. Let's have a listen to Into the Storm. In 2010, Harry released the self-titled album for his solo project, Hal Yorega, with all lyrics in Faroese. 2011 brought on the last album with drummer Carrie Stramoy, The Lay of Thrym, named after a story in Norse mythology relating to the theft of Thor's hammer, Mjolnir, by the giant king Thrym. If we step back a little for a moment, 
When touring for Pagan Fest, groups including Antifa and Biff were spreading some bullshit about Tear, Moonsorrow and Alivati in the media, claiming that they were Nazis, racists and fascists because of their use of Norse runes and pagan themes. At the time, Harry of Tear and Vili of Moonsorrow did a bit of a PSA together, explaining that the runes they use are part of their culture, ancient culture, and are as they've been written for thousands of years. For them, they're often speaking and singing in their native languages, singing about their culture and history, so it feels only natural to be able to use those runes as well. As a further response on the album The Lay of Thrym, Tear released a song called Shadow of the Swastika, doing more to clarify their stance and giving a big fuck you to the people accusing them of being Nazis. This was received differently. Looking at reviews from the time, there were definitely some people who didn't quite get their message. But this issue around runes and their association with Nazis isn't something new. It's rooted in the German Nazi party appropriating these runes back in the 1920s and tainting their image through their use and their actions. It's then continued, with current Nazi groups continuing to utilise these and some of them trying to embed themselves within the Viking-type spaces. There have been LARPers in Sweden who formed Vikinger More Racism, VMR or Vikings Against Racism for this reason. They're trying to combat the far right who try to claim hold over Viking heritage, causing Viking reenactors, LARPers and Viking meddlers to often be mistaken for Nazis. The VMR have held protests against neo-Nazi Nordic resistant movement when they attempted to march through Gothenburg and have been working to prevent the presence of racists at LARP events. If we go all the way back to the 20s, the Nazis claimed that the Germanic runes, those of the Futhark, were the first known alphabet from which all others descended, because this fits their narrative, that narrative of the Germanic people being superior to all others. But the truth is that the Futhark, the runic alphabet, was actually inspired by Mediterranean alphabets. Because of these beliefs, the Nazis appropriated a range of runes for their own purposes, including the S rune, which they renamed the Sieg rune, or the Victory rune, and then used as the symbol for Hitler's SS. They took the O rune, which was known as Odilla, meaning inheritance, and instead used this for the symbol of blood and Boden, or blood and soil. The T rune, which was already associated with Tyr, the god of war, became popular in a Nazi youth organisation, the Hitlerjugend. Although, as we know, Tyr was more than just a god of war. And they took the R rune, which became the symbol of either life or death, depending on which way the diagonal lines were facing. There was a story from 1944 where a citizen notified the Denmark Museum that they'd found something in an airfield at Veilos when construction unearthed a skeleton and various pieces of jewellery. A museum inspector gained access to the site after a big struggle with German authorities, and they found amongst the skeletal remains a brooch called a rosette fibula. On one side of the brooch was the name Alagod, carved in runes, but it was unfortunately accompanied by a swastika. The swastika is, of course, the ancient sun symbol that was once very common throughout Europe, and that of Hindu religions, including Buddhism and Jainism, but this was taken on in the 1930s as the symbol of the Third Reich. As a backlash to the propaganda of the Nazis, the discovery of the brooch was kept under wraps and not reported in the media until 1945, but not before all traces of the swastika were removed from the finding, including some very skillful editing of the photos that had been taken and held by the National Museum of Denmark. Their removal and lack of reporting on this were an understandable response. They were wanting to protect these symbols, 
As now, symbols resembling those used by the Nazis are forbidden in the German constitution and at the very least frowned upon elsewhere. Here in Victoria, Australia, we had laws come in just last December criminalising the public display of Nazi symbols with both fines and prison time as a penalty. And when they were initially talking about this potentially happening, that was one of my first questions. Are they going to lump any Norse runes in with this? And I'll be honest, I still don't know if they have. So in terms of the song Shadow of the Swastika, the lyrics are pretty straight to the point and a bit crass in getting the message across, including You can shove the sins of your father where no light may pass and kiss my Scandinavian ass. In another section stating Make sure you count me out of the ranks of your inbred morons and what I think is very clear A lie lost in the legacy of fools left us this parody unsurpassed. It's about the fact that these runes have existed for so much longer and are a part of a bigger culture. We can't allow that part of history to be stamped out or replaced by the actions of the Nazis who used the runes incorrectly and under false information. So let's have a listen to Shadow of the Swastika. In 2011, following the release of The Lay of Thrym, Tyr was part of the 70,000 Tons of Metal Cruise event before joining Corpaclani on their Manala tour in the US and Canada in 2012, and then signing a three-album deal with Metal Blade Records, where they released the album Valkyra. In 2013, they hit the seas once again with the 70,000 Tons of Metal Cruise, they played Pagan Fest alongside Ensiferum, and then took part in Bloodspect over Europe, a tour they did with Finnish folk metalers Vintrol and Icelandic band Skarmold. Before we jump into some further controversy surrounding the band, let's listen to one of Valkyra, Blood of Heroes. So a few years later, in 2016, frontman Harry Jonsson found himself in hot water with fans and animal rights groups all over the world. This isn't the first time he'd copped any flack for this, but he posted an image on Facebook showing him helping to butcher a pilot whale as part of the Grind, with a caption about men harvesting their own meat. This put a target on his back from groups like Sea Shepherd, who started a smear campaign as well as petitions and protests aiming to have their shows shut down or encouraging venues to remove them from their bills. Unfortunately, this did result in about eight venues banning them, and although some posted statements advising this was to show their disgust at the whale hunt or their support of the Sea Shepherd, others didn't really specify, and I have to wonder how much of it was really they just didn't want to deal with the bullshit of the protesters. Sea Shepherd claimed incorrectly that the pilot whales were endangered, that it's a barbaric coming-of-age ritual done by sadistic men who, you know, just want bloodshed, they claim that it's environmentally unstable and a show of animal cruelty. Captain Paul Watson of Sea Shepherd has called Tyr Harry and his crazy pseudo-Viking satanic cult, stated that they love blood, gore, and they have death fantasies, and that they boast of their passions for cruelty and death. In pushing for the boycott of Tyr's music, he said that Tyr have used their music to promote the killing of whales, which isn't true. Uh, so they wanted to use their music in opposition and against them. I do know a few people who do work with Sea Shepherd, some of who around this time did tell me that I should boycott Tear because of this. And honestly, some of the things that the Sea Shepherd crew do are wonderful. They've spent lots of time and effort physically cleaning and clearing beaches, literally helping animals they found along the way. But if you look at the organization as a whole, some of the more extreme actions uh, and the way in which Paul Watson talks and runs things, 
There's a very cult-like aspect to it, and they're clearly not afraid of twisting truths or flat-out lying to support their ideals, get money, and get followers. I'll let Harry speak on this a little, using some clips he shared following these events. I was helping in the slaughter of a long-finned pilot whale in Kvarnasund in the Faroe Islands, the day after it had been killed. I also participated in the hunt the day before, although I never killed a whale myself. For that, you need to attend the lessons and get a license, and I haven't done that. Since more than 80% of the world's population is not vegetarian, I think it should be fine to share pictures like this, because people should see how meat is produced. But it is actually very rare to see pictures from inside slaughterhouses, so people get this Disney fairy tale-like relation to meat. Ethically, I don't see the difference. All animals have the capacity to suffer. If you can slaughter livestock, then you can slaughter wildlife for food. Whaling is illegal in the European Union, but the Faroe Islands are not members of the European Union, as is clearly stated in the Treaty of Rome. Our whaling is not subject to international control. The International Whaling Commission specifically states that it does not get involved in non-industrial sustenance whaling of small cetaceans by indigenous peoples, other than assisting in ensuring sustainability. Nobody goes out actively searching for whales. When a pot of whales happens to be seen close to land, a hunt may or may not be undertaken. It depends on how far from land the whales are, if the ocean currents and the weather are favorable, and if people already have enough whale meat. It is the decision of the whale informant. As any modern country, we have animal welfare legislation and there are strict local regulations on how to conduct a whale hunt. It is illegal to cause the unnecessary suffering of any animal and it is illegal to attempt to kill a whale before it is properly secured on the beach and it is illegal to drive whales anywhere without the explicit permission or orders from the whaling foreman. When the hunt is over, all participants are noted by the whaling foreman and they all get a share. Those living in the area also get a share, all depending on the size of the catch. You are expected to assist in the cutting up of the whale that you have been given a share of, which is what I was doing in the picture. Whaling accounts for a very large share of our meat consumption. I was given somewhere between 50 and 75 kilograms of prime quality wildlife meat for my work. It's not at all uncommon here to produce your own food from nature, such as keeping sheep, catching fish or wild birds, or shooting hare. Whaling is just another part of that way of life. I have slaughtered many more sheep than whale, for example, and nobody seems to care. I find that quite weird. They estimate that there are 780,000 long-filmed pilot whales in the Northeast and Central Atlantic. In the Faroe Islands, 800 pilot whales are killed a year on average. That is 0.1% of the population. An annual harvest of 2% is considered sustainable maximum. Compare that to the billions of animals that are bred for slaughter every year worldwide. Whales may be relatively intelligent, but so are many other animals, pigs for example, and they are slaughtered without much ethical concern. To us, the long-finned pilot whale is just another animal that exists in abundance in our nature. It means nothing to say that in these modern times it's not necessary to hunt whale. An organization called the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society consistently misrepresents the issue and demonizes the Faroese people, all for the financial gain of Paul Watson, who is their founder. In the Faroe Islands, we know firsthand that he doesn't care about the truth and then he, that he has a blatant disregard for the safety of human life. The facts are, there are no bloodthirsty barbarians here who enjoy torturing animals in annual coming-of-age rituals. That's just ridiculous. This kind of whaling is not illegal in the Faroe Islands. The long-finned pilot whale is not endangered. I have never killed a whale myself, and I probably never will, but I take part in the grind exclusively for the food. Best wishes to you all.
You can find the full clip along with other statements and information on YouTube, and I think they're really well spoken. The Faroes are a small set of islands that don't have the same access to trade that we do, and in their circumstances, this tradition is actually a much more environmentally friendly and sustainable practice than some of the alternatives. They're responsible in the way they do this, with training, licenses, and standard practices that are expected of all people participating, and they monitor the numbers to ensure they're not overfishing and that they manage the population. The only thing I would say that Harry doesn't quite get right is he tends to focus a lot on it being no different to the slaughter of other animals used for meat. I agree that this is true, although as an ex-slaughterhouse worker and an ex-vegan, I will say that farm animals are in a much worse position than whales they're hunting in this case. But when he's talking about Sea Shepherd and those organizations, the members are predominantly vegan. They're essentially expected to become vegan to be part of the organization. So they already tend to agree that they're the same thing. So it's not really an argument that's relevant to them. What's pretty clear though, is that the whale hunts in the Faroes are an easy target for Sea Shepherd, because even those of us that eat meat are more likely to be put off by the images of whales being slaughtered because we're less conditioned to that than we are to the animals that we eat. Blood in the water creates a very gory image. So that just feeds their arguments that it's this sadistic and cruel event because it looks even worse than it would if they were slaughtered on dry land. And when it's played up as this barbaric tradition without the context of how it truly supports the people there in such a sustainable fashion, People are more likely to listen to the stories the Sea Shepherd are telling them and then separate it from the animals that make up part of their own diets and lifestyles. As mentioned earlier, this isn't the only time that the band have seen these issues and being part of the Faroe Islands where this is a tradition, their people have been targeted by the likes of Sea Shepherd and Greenpeace many times over the years. So although Tyr are not promoting the killing of whales, despite what Paul Watson would like you to think, they did include a song about Sea Shepherd on their album Eric the Red under the title Rainbow Warrior, after the Greenpeace ship of the same name. So let's listen to Rainbow Warrior. Back when this was all fresh, when I was encouraged to boycott the band by a mate who's part of Sea Shepherd, well, for one, Tia weren't touring here anyway, so that wasn't really an option, uh, though I would have happily paid to see them. But mostly I just thought it was ridiculous, because then shouldn't I and the person telling me to do this, then have to boycott every band who hunts or goes fishing. I'm sure there's loads of examples, but if we were to look at two of the biggest metal bands ever, Metallica and Iron Maiden, James Hetfield is a huge gun collector and hunter. Back in 2014, he even narrated an eight episode documentary series on bear hunting in Alaska. Because of that, there were some protests, particularly at the Glastonbury Festival, but it wasn't enough to stop them from playing, so they still did their show, and clearly wasn't enough to stop them ever, because they're still going strong nearly 10 years later. And did you know that Adrian Smith absolutely loves fishing, to the point where, while out on a fishing trip once, he got stuck, had to sleep on a riverbank, and then almost missed an Iron Maiden gig. If you wanted to get technical, both of these examples are in the context of sport, rather than for feeding even themselves, let alone an entire community. So if we were to look at morals, I believe there would be argument that these could be seen as worse acts. And I say that with worse in air quotes. <laughs> I, I don't think that these things are worth boycotting a band over. And I don't think that a Faroese group participating in a traditional activity that feeds not only their family, but their whole community is worth that either. But that's just me. 
I think the big thing in these situations is that you can make your own decisions that help you balance the weight of the world in a way that works for you. We're all just out here trying to exist and survive as we can, right? We don't want to ignore all the things that happen and pretend everything is fine and dandy, but we can't take the weight of the world on our shoulders. But we should be weary of cult leaders who want your money and attention at the expense of vilifying others. Back into our timeline, Tear had another bit of a break between recording, with the next album, Hell, being released in 2019. In Norse mythology, when you die, if you die as a warrior, you go to Valhalla with endless drinking, fighting and fucking. Whereas a not-so-glorious death lands you in Hell. That's Hell with one L. The music on this one uses Hell as a bit of a backdrop, with some lyrics exploring hopelessness and despair, but generally aiming at lifting you up from the times where you might be feeling those feels, rather than making you feel helpless. In 2020, Harry and his partner released a side project under the name Surma with the album The Light Within. In 2021, Hans Hammer joined the band, replacing Attila Voros on guitar, who jumped in just a couple of years prior when Turgy left. This makes the current lineup Harry on vocals and guitar, Gunnar Thompson on bass, Tad Reekman on drums, and Hans Hammer on guitar. And their most recent release was a live album in 2022, A Night at the Nordic House, which was recorded live with the Symphony Orchestra of the Faroe Islands. So before we finish up today's episode, we're going to take a listen to the first track off the album Hell, Downhill Drunk. Although this is in part about the hardships of being a professional musician, there was, as always, some inspiration from their home in the Faroes, where the hilly landscape is sure to make this a familiar direction for anyone heading home after a night at a local bar. Downhill drunk. What are your thoughts on Tear? Did you enjoy their music? Do you think they're just another Viking gimmick band, a bunch of Nazis, or bloodthirsty whale killers? Shoot me a message through my social media or email me at sinandsteel at outlook.com letting me know your thoughts. Thanks for joining me for today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to and share the podcast and follow me on social media. Check out my link tree to access playlists including songs from the episode and for the Sin and Steel Redbubble store for merchandise featuring artwork by yours truly. Next month I have quite a bit on, so I am going to take a little bit of a break on the podcast. I'll be skipping trivia and artist spotlights, but I will still bring you my main episode. It's just going to come a little bit later in the month than normal. I am anticipating a pretty cool episode though, as I have some nerdy worlds colliding when I explore heavy metal in video games. I'm talking metal bands with their own games, metal themed games, metal music in games, the genre Nintendo core, and metalheads who play video games, amongst other things. So make sure you keep an eye out for that one. This has been episode 9 of Sin and Steel. Thanks again for listening in. I'm your host, Serotonin, and Sinners, until next time, stay metal. <laughs>